Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From universetoday.com, engineers have finally opened the sample container from OSIRIS-REx. Ooh. I, I don't know what OSIRIS-REx is, so I'm sure well, you fill me in. you haven't been listening. I did an article on it like three months ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. I haven't been listening. <laughs> All right, let's back it up. OSIRIS-REx was a NASA mission to retrieve a sample from an asteroid, specifically an asteroid named Bennu. Ah, okay, it's coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the probe launched in 2016. It was a pretty complex and, frankly, audacious mission. But in order to collect the samples, the probe kissed the surface <laughs> at just the right trajectory and velocity so as not to be destroyed. And to return them, OSIRIS-REx completed a flyby maneuver of Earth and dropped them off before continuing on to a new destination. But, you know, we've all been there. That one pickle jar or jam jar we can't <laughs> open, right? Maybe put a rubber band on it under warm water. But imagine if that jar was a module from a 1.16 billion interplanetary probe. And that's basically what happened to NASA engineers when they were trying to recover the samples and discovered the clamps had cold welded shut. Wow. Did they Science. try slapping it on the bottom of the bottle? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> they, they tried slapping it. They even tried turning it on and off again. Listen, nothing worked, okay? But I mean, I just asked my husband to do it. They should have done that. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> the samples were successfully returned to Earth in 2023. Basically, the capsule gracefully floated down under a parachute to the Department of Defense's Utah Test and Training Range. The samples that were contained within will help us to better understand how planets formed, how life began, and how to improve our knowledge of asteroids. So when the engineers tried to open the sample head of the touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism, which is the proper name of that container, mm. they quickly learned that two of the 35 fastenings had cold welded themselves shut. The team, unfortunately, did not have any ready-made tools for such a situation, so mm. they had to improvise, and they created their own tool from a special non-magnetic stainless steel. Now, if this wasn't hard enough, the team's challenge was exacerbated because of the lack of space in the container that the samples and the capsule were stored within. So the process ended up being very laborious. The team had to test and refine the tool and instrument over and over to minimize risk of damage and contamination. Because if the tool didn't work right, they didn't want to put a broken tool on an extremely precious sample that mm -hmm. you're going to have a really hard time trying to get again, right? Mm -hmm. That being said, they were able to open it with limited success. So they were only able to recover about 70 grams of the asteroid sample Although this was in excess of the target. They were only hoping to get 60. They managed to get 70. Whew. So science teams are now working with some of the samples. They've hermetically sealed the rest for future studies. Hopefully in a different container, they know how to open a lot easier now. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's surprising to me. I mean, this can't be the first time things have cold welded. <laughs> in space? Yeah, in probably space. not. But 
how the budgeting and project management for something like NASA works is beyond what my puny brain can truly handle. It may have been as simple an explanation as didn't have it in the budget. <laughs> right? Right, and I'm sure there's 30 billion things to do, too. So. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. it's not like we drop samples down through the atmosphere very often. Like we usually right. are landing <laughs> ships and stuff. We're not like this is yeah. a unique thing that they did where they're like, we don't want to land the probe. We just want to sort of throw the baggie back down to Earth and keep on going. So, <laughs> yep. and that means that whatever's still on the space probe is also going to cold weld when it comes back. Like oh, we now boy. know, but we have a tool for it now. So it's OK. Yes, we're prepared. <laughs> right. We have gone through the learning. Right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. OK, this comes from New Atlas. Betavolt says its diamond nuclear battery can power devices for 50 years. Oh. Two things that are known to be cheap, diamonds <laughs> and nuclear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. China's Betavolt new energy technology has unveiled a new modular nuclear battery that uses a combination of nickel 63 and a fourth generation diamond semiconductor that they say can power a device for 50 years. Oof. I mean, like, what's the risk of, like, a little mini Chernobyl in my pocket? Like, how, right. how safe is this? We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> Though they do seem like something super advanced, like we haven't done this before. We mm -hmm. have been doing this in some form or another since the 1950s. Oh. Frankly, we did do a lot of stupid things with radioactive particles in the 50s, mm. but we've learned some things since. <laughs> But in 2016, a new principle was introduced, which uses diamond-layered doped with radioactive isotopes. The idea is to select an isotope that releases beta particles, which are essentially high-energy, high-speed electrons or positrons. When these are released, the diamond matrix acts as a semiconductor to generate an electrical current. Hmm. Betavolt's new battery, called the BV100, uses two single crystal diamond semiconductor layers with a thickness of 10 microns, each sandwiching a two micron layer of that Teeny nickel. tiny. They're okay. small. Each one of these sandwiches can produce current, but they can also be stacked or linked like old-fashioned voltaic cells to form hundreds of independent modules that work together to boost the current. The whole wow. thing is then sealed in a protective case to shield against radiation exposure, and to protect the battery against physical damage. But in case you were worried like I was, doesn't radiation cause some major damage to human cells? They said that beta radiation is on the safer side of radiation as it doesn't travel far and doesn't penetrate the skin, okay. they say. And as we know, only gamma rays give us superpowers. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So Betavolt estimates that such batteries could one day power a mobile phone so it never needs recharging or terrifyingly, they said, keep a small drone in the air indefinitely. I don't like that one. Uh huh. Oh, no. Yeah. They're like, oh, no, no, no. It's useful for cell phones. Don't pay attention to the drones. Like <laughs> Don't pay attention to the military. Cell phones, not surveillance <laughs> cell phones. According to the company, a larger one watt version is expected in 2025. So the energy density of the B100 is rated at 10 times that of lithium batteries. And since it generates electricity rather than storing it in the form of chemical reactions, you won't need to charge it. Hmm. It also seems like to me you won't be able to charge it either. Yeah. It'll just eventually die. But here's the good news on that front. The radioactive nickel eventually decays into non-radioactive copper, which they say poses a minimal risk 
Unless there's something they're not telling me about the <laughs> yeah. copper. I mean, copper's a thing people scavenge for money. So if, yeah. like, someone will go and collect it, I'm sure. Well, I know mm-hmm. that like drinking out of copper cups or using copper utensils, I think some studies or schools of thought think that it may be health benefiting or no antibacterial. This may be a little bit in the woo-woo. It is. Okay. Because <laughs> I've seen the copper bracelets and things that are supposed not to help Not the with... bracelets, but the... I mean, it is fundamentally <laughs> antibacterial. They used to make IUDs out of copper. That's it. Yep, yep, yep. But that doesn't, like, <laughs> compared to the radiation, I don't know that that's really a concern. But Right. right. Will we want to be using these as IUDs? No, I don't think so. No, 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 no. I don't need a nuclear battery (laughs) for my prophylactics. Nuclear waste. (laughs) (laughs) No, there were a lot of details missing on how toxic or how difficult it is or how expensive it's going to be or how Mm. do we even get the radioactive nickel. But soon we may, you know, I'd say soon, probably 20 years, we'll Mm -hmm. see these things out there in the world. Well, I look forward to never plugging in my phone. (laughs) Uh But probably by then we will have something else, right? Right. Right, right, uh, right. And right. we won't need this. Mm-hmm. So, next link. Next link. All right, this next one comes from a local news affiliate, ABC7 in Los Angeles. And they're asking the question, why do we have right on red and is it time to get rid of it? Why do we have what? <laughs> right on red. So, mm-hmm. just to be clear for our international audience, as well as any Americans who may live in one of the few places where this isn't the law, and also maybe Angie if she doesn't drive a lot in Austin. <laughs> In most places in the U.S., you can legally drive through a red light if you are turning right. The logic Ah. being that since we drive on the right-hand side of the road, a right turn will take you directly into your lane and not cross any oncoming traffic. And there is actually a lesser-known cousin of this law that says you can even turn left on red if you are turning from a one-way street to a one-way street because that, again, puts your car up against the curb and not at risk of crossing traffic. There's not a ton of places where that situation arises, but it does happen, especially in urban areas. Yeah, like maybe mm-hmm. New York or San Francisco or something. Mm. Ah, well, not New York, but we'll get there. Not New York. Okay, <laughs> they've, they've explicitly designed yes. against that. All right. But the right on red law actually has a bit of a strange history, as well as some significant drawbacks, as we'll see. So it's not clear who had the very first right on red law, but we do know that in the 1960s, it was limited to California and a couple other Western states. Woody Allen's character in the movie Annie Hall famously declared that he'd never live in Los Angeles because, quote, the city's only cultural advantage is that you can make a right turn on a red light. (laughs) And by 1972, still only 13 states allowed it. But then, in 1973, the Arab oil embargo began as a direct response to President Nixon's request for emergency aid to Israel, which, yeah, obviously, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? (laughs) But because of the oil embargo, gas prices in the U.S. skyrocketed, and right on red started to be promoted as a gas-saving measure on the theory Hmm. that it reduced idling at red lights. And everybody was so sold on this idea that just two years later, Congress included a provision in the 1975 Energy Policy and Conservation Act, which tied states' eligibility for federal energy funds to allowing right on red, Hmm. quote, to the maximum extent practicable, consistent with safety. (laughs) And, you know, like all federal mandates, who's in charge of measuring that? What does that mean? Who knows? Uh It's back when Congress used to do stuff. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, generally speaking, the Fed said you got to do this, so they did. And by 1980, nearly every state allowed right on red, with one famous exception being New York City, which has Mm. never allowed right on red, even though you can in the rest of New York State. And the logic behind that is pretty clear, right? There are more pedestrians than there are cars in New York City, and right on red definitely is not compatible with crosswalks. 
Yeah. And the law does say in every place that allows right on red that pedestrians do come first. But as New York City predicted and other cities quickly found out, it doesn't always happen that way. <laughs> One study found that between 1974 and 1977, the choice to adopt a right on red law caused a more than 20 percent increase in car accidents. <gasps> and that was an average. The number was even higher in urban areas with lots of pedestrians. Yikes. And sadly, the numbers have only gotten worse over time as driver <sighs> distractions have increased. And most importantly, with the rise of bigger and taller SUVs with less visibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to guess right on red has been the cause of many, many motorcyclists oh, yes. uh, coming to their end. Well, and they don't even get included. All the stats here are just pedestrians and sometimes bicycles because some states don't even include bicycles in their pedestrian stats. Ugh. Yeah, the number of wrecks <laughs> is insane. Specifically, as of 2022, drivers killed more than 7,500 pedestrians nationwide, which is the highest number since 1981. And a study in San Francisco found that while right-on-red crashes accounted for less than 1% of all crashes, they were responsible for a full 20% of pedestrian and bicycle-related crashes. Yikes! Mm. So public opinion is starting to turn, and a whole lot of cities have recently proposed or enacted bans on right-on-red, including mm. Atlanta, Denver, Indianapolis, Raleigh, Washington, D.C., and more. And, you know, again, it's really unclear how many cities within a state have to eliminate it before the federal government says, hey, guys, this kind of feels like it might be less than the maximum extent practicable, whatever that means. But <laughs> aside from potentially losing federal funding, people already have plenty of reasons to want to keep right on red. Some driver advocacy groups say that the change would make the roads more congested, both with cars and added air pollution, and mm -hmm. potentially hurt tourism if the city gets a reputation for bad traffic. Hmm. Other lawmakers worry that it will be just one more excuse for cops to pull over minority drivers and harass them for something that is legal outside the city but not inside it. Mm. And some people even claim that pedestrian safety is a weak justification for anything because, for example, we know that cutting the speed limit in half would save far more people on the road than eliminating right on red. But we don't do it because the fact is we are willing to make trade-offs when it comes to safety versus convenience. Hmm. Yeah, we have here in Austin at the Congress and Old Torf light, I've noticed what they've been putting up is no right turns only under certain hours. But the yeah. problem is nobody follows those. Right. And if you start having a lot of inconsistencies or exceptions to the rule, it makes observing a default rule that much harder. Yeah. And that also encourages people to be like, oh, well, the sign says there's no right mm -hmm. on red. So I'm going to walk into the crosswalk. And the driver's like, no, nope, mm -hmm. I'm going to go. It's just that level of confusion increases the accidents. I will say if right on red were eliminated, we would never have to be in that maddening situation where you want to turn right, but the guy in front of you is going straight to so be sitting still. <laughs> well, and this would totally mess up UPS and their <gasps> whole routes, which That's have basically right. defaulted mm -hmm. so they can right be turns. as efficient as possible. This would impact them hard. Yeah, I'm sure UPS is in that lobbying group that's like, uh -huh. no, do not get rid of this. <laughs> mm -hmm. We don't care about pedestrians. That's right. <laughs> Timeliness. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Get ready for this one, guys. From Ars Technica, an actor paid to pose as a crypto CEO is, quote, deeply sorry about the $1.3 billion scam. What is he sorry about? That he didn't get as much money as he thought he was getting? <laughs> you know, based on the details, I think that's a plausible read because an actor who was hired to pretend to be the highly qualified CEO of a shady, collapsed cryptocurrency hedge fund has apologized after a YouTuber unmasked his real identity. 
an Englishman currently living in Thailand, Stephen Harrison confirmed to The Guardian that Hyperverse hired him to pose as CEO Stephen Reese Lewis. Harrison told The Guardian that he was deeply sorry to Hyperverse investors who lost a reported $1.3 billion oh. after buying into a cryptocurrency mining operation that promised, quote, double or triple returns but did not, in fact, exist, according you to don't Watch. Say. Uh. You don't say. But Harrison claimed that he had, quote, certainly not pocketed any portion of those funds. Instead, he told The Guardian he was paid about $7,500 over so. the course of nine months. So how does he have no part in it? Yeah, it doesn't sound like he got, you know, brought in for a gig and didn't know what he was doing. Over the course of nine months, he impersonated somebody that he knew wasn't real. Oh, yes. You know, he said he was shocked to find out that Hyperverse had falsified his credentials. They told investors he was a fintech whiz, supposedly earning prestigious degrees before working at Goldman Sachs, then selling a web development company to Adobe before launching his own IT startup. Uh. Now, Harrison claimed he only found out about this resume fraud when The Guardian investigated, quote, when I read that in the papers, I was like, blooming heck, they made me sound so highly educated, oh, Harrison my told The Guardian. <laughs> he was working as an unpaid freelance sports commentator when a friend of a friend told him about the Hyperverse gig. The contract he signed was with an Indonesian-based talent agency called Mass Focus Limited. However, The Guardian could find no record of a company of this name on the Indonesian company register. Hmm. Now, Harrison's agent allegedly told him, oh, it's common for companies to hire corporate presenters to represent the business. And he reassured him Hyperverse was legitimate. He said when he was asked to start using the fake name Stephen Reese Lewis while filming, Hyperverse allegedly told him that he was, quote, acting the role. <laughs> His agent allegedly told him that this was perfectly normal. And after that, he, quote, never went online and checked about Stephen Reese Lewis. I looked on YouTube occasionally way back when they put the presentations up. But apart from that, I was detached from this role, Harrison said. Now, over nine months, he mostly worked one to two hours per month just making videos posing as the CEO. There was also a Twitter account launched under the fake name Stephen Reese Lewis. The Guardian noted that the date of Harrison's final paycheck from Hyperverse coincided with the last date the Twitter account was active. Wow. Oh my gosh. So that's the context. How did this break open? Well, a YouTuber named Jack Gamble tracked him down. So he posted a video on his YouTube channel, and the channel's called Nobody Special Finance, which may need a rebrand after this viral hit. Mm -hmm. He reported that he used Facebook and a face search engine called PimEyes to reveal his true identity. So starting on PimEyes, he searched for images of Stephen Reese Lewis using stills from Hyperverse promotional videos. This apparently turned up plenty of photos of the fake CEO, quote, lingering around drunkenly in the background of various nightclubs and bars. And yes, I mean, that mean there anything, are photos though. if you want to see some of these. But you can also go to the YouTube channel and see the whole expose. So at that first step, when none of the photos offered clues to the CEO's identity, Gamble began running PIMI searches for people posing with the CEO in photos. That led him to the YouTube account of another guy based in Thailand called Chris Mooton. Now, Mooton's YouTube account had been inactive for years, but Gamble was intrigued to find out that Mooton was following various crypto channels on YouTube. This felt like a red flag, so he went to Facebook to find out more about Mooton. And on Facebook, Gamble found what he was looking for, a photo of this guy eating pizza with someone who looked just like that Hyperverse CEO. Now, Mooton did not tag Harrison, but there were only five likes on the photo. One of those was from Harrison. Uh. And according to Gamble, when he made this connection, 
busted is what he said in the video. And he ended the video with a call for law enforcement to investigate Harrison. Now, it's unclear if he will face any consequences for his role posing as hyper versus phony CEO. But the crackdown has begun on bad actors allegedly making fraudulent promotional presentations to stoke hyperverse investments. The IRS has alleged that hyperverse promoter Rodney Burton acted as part of a network of promoters. Now, Burton goes by a nickname called Bitcoin Rodney. He was arrested in Florida a few weeks ago, and he's reportedly awaiting a custody transfer to Maryland where he will face charges for allegedly operating and conspiring to operate an unlicensed money transmitting business. Mm. Now, the complaint in his case is temporarily sealed, but more may be revealed about the hyperverse scheme. As for Harrison, he has denied any involvement in the actual operations of Hyperverse. Harrison notably did not explicitly ask for funds or make any claims about potential returns in his videos, which I think is a pretty important distinction for him. But Harrison told The Guardian he hopes there's some resolution where investors can regain funds lost. Quote, I really feel sorry for these people. I really do. I know it's hard to get the money back off these people or whatever, but I just hope there can be some justice served in all of this where they can get to the bottom of this. A couple of lessons here. It's like, they made me look like Hitler. Yeah, it says on here you're playing Hitler. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I suspect having heard all of it, I think he probably was just duped. I mean, there might have been a couple places where he chose not to ask questions, but I don't think he ever imagined that he was going to be tied in with this. He was like, look, people do this. I mean, frankly, we want a white guy to face our company as opposed to whoever happens to be running it is a really common thing. You want that guy with the nice baritone and the beard. And I suspect his agent is right. It happens a lot more often than we know. It's just that those companies are merely using them as a face front as opposed to scamming the existence of the CEO entirely. Yeah. Next link. Next link. Okay, so we went from very expensive diamond power, and this is also (laughs) from New Atlas. Dirt-powered fuel cell draws near limitless energy from the soil. Huzzah! Yeah, I got a lot more dirt than I do diamonds. A team at Northwestern University has demonstrated a remarkable new way to generate electricity. I will, real quick, though, you know, diamonds could be cheap. What? Well, yes, obviously the the blood diamond restricting of the market <laughs> yeah, makes all of that. Just throw yeah. that in there real quick. That's so but that's okay. In the future, we'll have blood dirt and it'll be real bad. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a paperback sized device that nestles in the soil and harvests power created as microbes break down dirt. With the power of oranges. Sorry, that's an old Billy Mays reference that I don't think anybody got. Uh, So microbial fuel cells, as they're called, uh, we've had them for more than 100 years. So this isn't something new. They just haven't worked very well. Hmm. So they work a little bit like a battery with an anode, a cathode, and electrolyte. But rather than drawing electricity from a chemical source, they work with bacteria that naturally donate electrons to nearby conductors as they chow down on soil. But their main issue has been keeping them supplied with both water and oxygen while also being buried under the dirt. So project lead Bill Yen says, although MFCs have existed as a concept for more than a century, their unreliable performance and low output power have stymied efforts to make practical use of them, especially in low moisture conditions. But the team found success with a design shaped like a cartridge sitting vertically on horizontal discs. The disc is a carbon felt 
which acts as an anode and lies horizontally at the bottom of the device, buried under the soil where it can actually capture the electrons. And then the conductive metal cathode sits vertically, so it's like makes an upside-down T, with a fresh air gap that runs down the whole length of the electrode. So there's a diagram and a couple of pictures of the device included, and it looks very simple and easy to build. Mm -hmm. Like you can make it with a 3D printer. Wow. The carbon disc may be a little bit tougher to get, but still nothing like nuclear (laughs) (laughs) radiation. Right. Right. So in testing the design, it performed consistently across different soils from completely underwater to somewhat dry. On average, it generated some 68 times more power than was required to operate its onboard moisture and touch detector systems and transmit data via a tiny antenna to a nearby base station. Hmm. It's still not enough to run a dirt-powered car or smartphone. Right, right. It's more about powering small sensors that can run over a long term without needing regular battery chargers. Right, Mm. just plug it into whatever dirt is nearby and you get Mm -hmm. a little bit of power. Right, likely the sensors could be handy for farmers looking for monitoring various soil elements, moisture, nutrients, contaminants, etc. Yeah, I mean, as long as the microbes stay alive. Because then it becomes like the sourdough starter, where once it dies, it's dead and you got to start over. So they got to keep their dirt healthy, which is good. We want to keep the dirt healthy, so that's Mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the way to suddenly shut off all of their electrical devices at that point would be to, like, irradiate the soil real quick (laughs) and kill every living thing, and now you Uh have no power either. (laughs) Yeah, there's no backup for that. Mm -mm. But at least, unlike the nuclear batteries, these are going to be super safe. Yes, right. You can't go wrong with just sticking something in the dirt. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right, this next one is from VentureBeat. And it's called Nightshade. The free tool that poisons AI models is now available for artists to use. Yay! Yeah. So this is basically one of the first major counterpunches in the coming AI versus AI war in that it uses AI in order to defeat AI that's doing something we don't like. Nightshade is a free software tool developed by a group known as the Glaze Project at the University of Chicago under Professor Ben Zhao. And it starts by using a popular open source AI framework called PyTorch to analyze a given image. But then, instead of applying an accurate tag identifying the image, which is what other AI sources would do, Nightshade deliberately attaches an inaccurate tag and subtly changes the image at a pixel level in a way that doesn't change what it looks like to a human, but makes any subsequent AI think the picture contains something completely different. Hmm. And this is actually the second tool that the team has created. The first one released a year ago was called Glaze, and it was only able to alter an image to the degree that an AI would mistakenly think it was in a different style, like it contained brushstrokes when it didn't or had different colors than were actually in the image. And the goal with Glaze was simply to protect artists from having their unique art style stolen. But Mm. with Nightshade, the goal is less defensive and more offensive. Mm-hmm. Because an image that has been processed through Nightshade is going to actively poison any AI that tries to train on it. Because say you took, for example, an image of a cow in a green field and shaded it, so to speak, through the Nightshade program. The resulting image would still look entirely like a cow in a field to you. But because they've changed these key pixels in certain ways, it's now going to look to any subsequent learning model like a leather purse lying in the grass. And mm. if a subsequent user of that AI model says, generate me an image of a cow, They're going to end up with a bunch of weird purse-cow hybrids that are not what they were looking for. 
So it basically forces image generators to never use an image for training without the consent of, or as the team is hoping, royalty payments to the creator (laughs) of that particular piece of art. Hmm. That would be nice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So the tool is available for both Mac and PC, and anyone can download it and use it as long as they agree to the license, which is a pretty standard one for open source programs. Basically, you can't commercialize it. And if you alter the open source code, you can't call the resulting program Nightshade anymore. And people have been downloading it ever since the announcement. A spokesperson for the team said the current demand is overwhelming the university's bandwidth, and some (laughs) users are reporting download times of up to eight hours for what is ultimately a pretty small program. Wow. But you can get it if you want. Mm. Another benefit of Nightshade is that the shading process persists even when the image is subsequently altered. Quote, you can crop it, resample it, compress it, smooth out pixels or add noise, and the effects of the poison will remain. You can what? take screenshots or even photos of an image displayed on a monitor and the shade effects remain. Wow. What's in the pixels? Yeah. What's yeah. in there? I know, Poison? I know. How is that working? Now, unsurprisingly, fans of AI image generators are not happy <laughs> with this development, with some suggesting it is tantamount to a cyber attack on all AI models and companies. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and here we have the most amazing parenthetical ever seen in a news article. Quote, VentureBeat uses MidJourney to create article header artwork. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And they're not kidding. You can scroll up to the top of this very article and see an image that is clearly AI generated. Wow. But the team denies that they are seeking the destruction of AI models. Quote, Nightshade's goal is not to break models, but to increase the cost of training on unlicensed data such that licensing images from their creators becomes a viable alternative. Mm. OpenAI, for their part, says tools like Nightshade aren't necessary because they've already offered opt-out code that a person can add to their website, which will theoretically cause the data crawlers to not scrape any images from that site. Yeah. But But you have to opt out, so Uh you have to find it. Opt out. You have to Mm -hmm. know that that's an option. Right. And opting out from OpenAI doesn't mean you've opted out from anybody else. It's ridiculous. (laughs) And according to the Nightshade team, quote, opt out lists have been disregarded in the past and can be easily (laughs) ignored with zero consequences. Yep. They are unverifiable and unenforceable. Nightshade does not rely on the kindness of model trainers. (laughs) But it's legally sound. So they all have Mm -hmm. the bare minimum to hold up in court for liability reasons. Unfortunately, it is true that Nightshade can't turn back time. So images that have already been (laughs) scraped are in MidJourney and others forever. But, you know, with this tool out there now, we can pretty safely assume that the scraping is going to immediately pause, at least long enough for them to figure out a way to analyze whether an image has been shaded and rejected or assimilated accordingly. Because, you know, it's an arms race that Mm -hmm. I'm sure will eventually lead to all of our deaths. But for right now, (laughs) the ball is in their court and it's it's a good move. I think this is really this is where we were always going to go. Right. There's Mm -hmm. always going to be people fighting back. There are people Mm -hmm. who are really smart on both sides. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of who happens to be winning at any particular moment. And it's happening faster and faster and faster and faster. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, at least they're not asking me. Like, as long as I don't have to develop any of these tools, I'm happy to use them. I'm happy to spread the word about them. Just don't don't get me involved, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, Internet. It's not just AI's fault, but it's also AI's fault. According mm-hmm. to the register.com, researchers confirm what we already knew. Google results really are getting worse. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because talking about that cat and mouse game, SEO spam is a big thing. And I was complaining to my dear spouse about this this week because I'm trying to shop for a new shower curtain. 
and I want to get a longer shower curtain that's about 84 inches. And mm. my search results are garbage. It's the yeah. same cheap stuff repeated over and over. And no amount of keyword wizardry seems to be making a difference. And mm. if this sounds familiar, no, it's not just you. Search engine results really are getting worse as the internet is flooded not only from SEO farms and affiliate link sites, but also AI. This is according to a group of German researchers who made their determination after spending a year reviewing results for about 7,000 product review queries on Google, wow. Bing, and DuckDuckGo. Apparently, they're saying this is the first systematic review into the question of worsening search engine result quality. And after pouring over countless links for the past year, the team has concluded everyone complaining about Google's declining quality seems to be correct. And things are probably only going to get worse with the advent of generative AI, just like we have feared. Mm. That's why I'm on Bing. I'm just kidding. That's right, right, right. <laughs> Nobody's on Bing. Yeah, I like how they pretended there were any other browsers besides Google. They're like, yeah, it's Google. And we'll throw in two others, you know, for variety's sake. For variety, a little bit, yeah. According to the report, quote, we can conclude that higher ranked pages are on average more optimized, more monetized with affiliate marketing, and they show signs of lower text quality. They also found that while a small portion of product reviews use affiliate marketing, the majority of search engine results do use the tactic, which is only adding to the problem of glum search engine result page quality. Quote, all search engines have significant problems with highly optimized affiliate content. We further observe an inverse relationship between affiliate marketing use and content complexity. Mm -hmm. And not only that, efforts to subvert such manipulation through algorithm updates have at best, quote, a temporary positive effect. Apparently, Google's targeting of SEO and affiliate spam appears to be the most effective. But regardless, search engines seem to be losing the cat and mouse game that is SEO spam at the moment. Well, and just the sheer number of uh, fake variety. Yes. Where, like you said, the same product will be posted 15 times under different companies, but they are all fundamentally the same yes. company. Yes. And if you are 15 out of the 16 companies, you've just reduced the footprint of that one company that's actually selling a legitimate product. Exactly right. It crowds them out. It's more noise, so you can't find any signal. Mm -hmm. Now, Google claimed in 2022 it was updating its algorithm to prioritize what they were calling people-first content. But what the researchers found is that those efforts have basically been in vain because SEO experts and spam factories just figured out how to game the newest tweaks to the system, mm -hmm. right? And the researchers are careful to say affiliate marketing itself is in part responsible for what online content looks like now. But banning it entirely is probably not a solution because a lot of authentic sites do use the tactic and do use SEO optimization as an important revenue stream. But in the end, it may remain a cat and mouse game. And boy, I hope we're not the mice. Well, I mean, you know, the mice, like, <laughs> it's only a cat and mouse game if the mice continues to survive. If the mouse goes extinct, there's nothing hey. for the cat to eat. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, they're they're destroying their own marketplace. Yes. Like, exactly all of right. these companies, it's a short-term profit, but it doesn't last. And so fundamentally, you know, we may be in for a horrible revolution where all of a sudden everyone's back to brick and mortar stores for a little while. But OK, like if that's what it takes, fine. I just need to be able to find a really cool shower curtain in the size that I want without seeing the same Photoshop. Mm -hmm. Oh, it makes me so mad. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, at, as your friend, I'm going to go out and try to find you a shower curtain now. Oh. And if I find one, I'll let you know. Thank <laughs> you. I'll be your curator. <laughs> we have light blue tile. Thank you. <laughs> okay, good to know. <laughs>
All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Astronomers Puzzled by Galaxy with No Stars, Ancient Chewing Gum Reveals Poor Stone Age Dental Health, and French Cheese Under Threat. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.